this is Chris Olson, and welcome to Shoutbox. We have a really fascinating guest on today. Katie L. O'Neill is a performance artist based out of Chicago. I met just a couple months back, actually, when she was finishing up her grad degree at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. She's doing amazing work, particularly around disability and mental health, and she does a lot of her work from a great deal of experience, and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring her on. One of the things that really drew me to Katie's story is she was referring to the idea of passing, meaning that she had a disability that no one could see. The passing pertains to identity, it pertains to mental health. It's something that you can be perceived as one thing on the outside while it might be something different on the inside. And she's doing a lot of fantastic work around this subject. We had an opportunity to sit down for this podcast at the Harold Washington Library. I'm recording this intro separately, but let's turn it over now and hear Katie's story because it's amazing. Katie, welcome to the program. Hey. We've talked a little bit about this ourselves, but I would love to just share some of your backstory. I I love your work. So where did it all start? Well, I am from a small little farm town in New Jersey, and I lived on like three acres of land, and I realized that I was starting to develop symptoms when I was about seven or eight. And that was also around the same time that my parents went through a divorce. Uh That was one of my first memories actually was this kind of culminating moment of when it happened. It was really dramatic. Like I, I remember every single detail. It's really my first memory. I don't remember much before eight. Got it. It's okay. very strange. And so I found a lot of sanctuary being out in the yard, being able to sort of hide whatever was happening to me. Cause I knew that when I started seeing hallucinations around that time, that I thought that they were ghosts, you know, mm, I thought that right. I was seeing spirits cause you're eight. So you don't know what hallucinations are. You're, you just kind of have this idea of what the supernatural is. And obviously I don't think that would be something I'd want to talk to my mom about yeah. in the midst of all this other family dynamic shattering that's going on. And after that moment, my family really fell apart. My brother kind of became this really angry person as a result of the divorce. And I started to have to go see my father, which before I was eight, he wasn't really around regularly. He was working a lot of hours. And so suddenly I had to go from New Jersey into Philadelphia for the weekends to spend with this man that I actually didn't really know much about. That was really traumatizing for me, actually. And one of the things that really sticks out to me now after all these conversations with my brother is that a lot of my delusions and other symptoms relating to my borderline personality disorder as well as my schizoaffective really started to come out when I would have to go see my father. One of the things being that I was completely set on the fact that if I did not call my mother at least four times a day, now I would only be with my dad Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday, that she would die. And that is not like, that is not a normal thing for like a nine, 10, 11 year old to say, and to keep having that rehashed every weekend, it just like floors me that a lot of these signs were there and that no one really picked up on it, you know? And that certainly caused a lot of what borderline personalities, how that usually stems from is this kind of unstable family structure in your childhood as well as like childhood trauma, it's really feeling like unsafe most of the time that causes you to not develop coping
coping mechanisms that everyone is really supposed to develop as a child. I was kind of inhibited about that. You know, I think I'm about like 10 or 11. I'm really starting to see a lot more hallucinations. I'm starting to have outbursts. But also at the same time, I'm able to like pass, you know, this concept of passing, of being able to seem like that you're neurotypical, like there's nothing really wrong. Like I got really good grades. I listened to whatever my parents needed me to do. You know, I was a very like obedient child. But at the same time, I was really starting to fall apart and crumble. And my only way of letting that out was to go out into the woods, into the yard and really just like scream and like hit things. Like I would punch the shit out of trees, actually. I would just get all these like scars. I still have all these scars on my knuckles from doing that. There was no room for me to be a disabled child in my home, in either of those homes. Interesting. Because I was, I've always been a very conscious person. I've been very aware of of my mom, who's like the strongest person I've like ever met, who has always tried to maintain this kind of consciousness and this strength and this, like nothing was really affecting her, even though I could see it was, it really, really was, right. but she tried to put on this front. So when things start to become worse, you know, my brother's own mental health seemed to have gotten worse. And when I would go to see my father who lived in a very, very small apartment, they started to scream and yell and and throw things at each other and you have to remember this is like a young child who in like a 600 square feet condo you have nowhere to hide from that and that continuous feeling of being scared or unsafe and not knowing what's going to happen next and then at the same time being like I you know all these delusions like I I can like kill people with my mind if I don't call people they're going to die like just all these things happening at once. And so there became a point where I was, I told my father that I couldn't go to his home anymore. I wrote him a letter. I couldn't actually say it to him. And I was about like 12, 13. And that was really hard for him because I thought that maybe if I didn't go see him, that all of this stuff would stop. It did not. (laughs) It did not. And by the time I was in middle school, going into high school, I mean, it was really, it was full force, my symptoms. I was very unstable emotionally. I had just inappropriate, aggravated responses to things that really didn't need that much of an exaggerated response. For example, if one of my friends needed to go home early, I would just burst into tears and be like, you hate me. Cause I just was never able to develop that coping mechanism of being like, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. Like if there was just a sudden change or someone had to leave, I could not process that. You know, this is around the same time as as teenagehood. So to my mother, that seemed just like hormones, hormonal. In this environment I grew up in, my my parents were never really like, let's go to therapy. They were anti-medication at the time. And so again, there wasn't really any room to be like, I think I should see someone because that's just not. Is, Is this something that you actually were aware was a possibility for you then? Yeah. Okay. By the time I was 13, probably in middle school, was when I first learned about schizophrenia in one of my history classes. Got it. Okay. 
I think they were talking about, uh, I believe it was about the Holocaust and the mass genocide of also disabled, mentally disabled folk. And so I was really able to like dig deep into what schizophrenic symptoms are like. And I was like, oh, like I was like, I identify with a lot of those. <laughs> I think I was really aware more of like the mood instability. However, I never, until my diagnosis in 2016, I never heard about borderline personality disorder like ever. So I just thought I was bipolar. That's what I just okay. say. But then I also started to realize that I was very much aligned with schizophrenia. And that was really scary for me. And I knew at that point that there was no way I could tell anyone like ever. Because then this new delusion developed because of this history that I learned that if I say that I have this, then my mom is going to allow someone to take me to an institution and just leave me there. It sounds almost as if there was, there was more fear based around being discovered or being labeled than there was even dealing with some of the difficult things that you were wrestling with. Yes. Why do you think there is so much stigma? I think when I was a teenager, when I went to high school, I started to be bullied, like really bad, like physically and emotionally bullied just because I looked different and my hair was short and I'm a queer woman, but I was still at the time exploring my sexuality. And so I realized even through that gesture, even through just having like short hair and dressing kind of like eccentric and having lots of patterns that caused the, these repercussions to happen to me. And then I found that, you know, hair aside, if I wore like normal clothes, that it was, I had less attention. I kind of sort of translated that also into my symptoms. You know, if I just kind of like hide, then we won't need to have this possibility of being ostracized more than you already feel it because of your appearance. I had the privilege of hiding my symptoms. I was high functioning enough that, and I was also pretty, I was pretty smart. You know, I, I was able to channel it in privacy a lot of the time. If I was having like an episode, I would remove myself to go let it out and then come back and be like totally normal. (laughs) And so that was the strategy that I did. And I found that because I was also struggling to survive just from the bullying that, you know, I never met anyone in my childhood, anyone at all, who was just like, I'm mentally ill, I'm disabled. Also, I did not start equating mental illness with disability until like three years ago. Oh, so (laughs) I didn't know. I didn't see a role model. I never learned about someone who was mentally ill and successful. I didn't have any friends that were like, I'm mentally, you know, there was just no conversation about that. So if you're already feeling afraid and and just hated by everyone, then you're definitely not going to start this new frontier and be the first one in your high school to be like, I'm mentally ill. And and even I also think that my beliefs certainly came from the history, you know, seeing that if these people were outed or if someone was aware that they were mentally ill or disabled, they were taken into the concentration camps or in the hospitals and tortured. And so I was very aware of this concept of being out being known about. And that definitely influenced how just my ability to pass, my need to pass in in high school, in my home, everywhere. It sounds really intense having to manage all that alone. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it definitely was. Yeah. I have no idea how I survived all of that. I really don't know. Right. 
and to just go for that long. You know, I wasn't diagnosed until I was 21. So I went from eight years of age until 21 passing. By the time I was in high school though, my symptoms were like all like kind of laid on the table, but everyone just thought that that was just part of my personality, which is funny because borderline personality disorder is a big part of your personality. But for many, it just was, oh, she's a teenager. She's hormonal. She's going through some changes. Like she just is a drama queen. I got that a lot. A drama queen, crybaby, those kinds of terms. Is, is, for those who may be unfamiliar with with some of the characteristics of that, what what is, I mean, you just described some of them, but what, mm-hmm. what is borderline? So borderline, again, it, it really is about your inability to have developed coping mechanisms as a child. Okay. And therefore, you're just really overrun by instability. So one of the main characteristics is black and white thinking, as they okay. call it. So everything is either really gray or really bad. There is this struggle to kind of see the gray, the middle part, like the middle just does not exist. (laughs) So if someone doesn't like me, they hate me. It's just you're at the high octave or you're at the low octave and it just jumps. Yes. The difference between borderline personality disorder and bipolar is that your moods can just change in a second and you can be a big mess in like a second. Whereas with bipolar, it's more patterned, like you might be manic for a few weeks, then you might kind of be in the middle and then you might go through a depressive episode for a period of time. You know, it depends on okay. on the person, yeah. you know, because so much of mental illness is a big spectrum. Yeah. You could just have five bipolar people in the room and they all have, have different experiences. I've met a few bipolar folk now that have certain, they have delusions and some of that kind of thinking patterns are rational. You raise a really good point. It just feels like that there's there's also this this uh, categorizing and labeling. There really is it, it's far more of this broadband spectrum of, of things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not like it fits easily into little little you know mail slots. Yeah, and labeling is is such like an interesting, fascinating yeah. part of this whole disability and mental illness world because up until I became much more in disability world. So that's like three years ago now. Yeah. The label, as you, as you just mentioned, is so defined when you read about it in history or in the DSM or from a counselor. It's like, if you have this, these are all the symptoms that you have. And it doesn't differentiate from that definition. So for me at the same time, while I was really aware that I have a lot of the same symptoms as a schizophrenic person, all of the images I had ever seen as schizophrenics being very low functioning, I was like, I don't identify in that image. So do I even have the power to say that I am schizo? So that was like another thing where I was like, okay, no, maybe you're not. Like (laughs) just second guessing yourself the whole time. The one time I think I was like 15, 16, I tried to make the case finally to my mother that I was bipolar and then I really should see a therapist because it was starting to affect all of my interpersonal relationships. And she even went on, I think to the internet and looked at bipolar symptoms and was like, you don't have these. You might have these two, but that doesn't make you bipolar. And so how are you going to argue with that? 
So the label is, is really interesting. And I did not realize up until just a few years ago that every mental illness is a spectrum. And oftentimes, if you have more than one mental illness, they are kind of comorbid and they tend to blend in with one another. I find a lot of my borderline symptoms and my schizoaffective symptoms kind of enmeshed. So for example, if I'm you know, experiencing the separation from reality that you, you often feel or you disassociate because of your schizophrenia, that can cause a panic attack for me, which is can be more related to borderline because you're starting to freak out and you don't know how to cope in the moment. So I find that they kind of charge with each other. Interesting. Which, okay. you know, and... That sounds pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely feel very special. I'm like, wow, what a wonderful experience. So unique. <laughs> and then part of this, it's high schools and middle schools, they are not doing enough to talk about mental illness, disability at all when they should because oftentimes in my case developing mental illness at eight years of age is actually really rare most mental illnesses develop in adolescence and early like 8 14 13 and then can also be more common all the way up until 24 and so that's a very prime age for the end of middle school and beginning of high school mid high school that there's not a lot of knowledge conversation or resources that are being offered for people who are starting to develop mental illness and like me probably are growing up in environments where you just don't have the opportunity to even start the conversation slash know how to start the conversation. 12 to 24 is hard enough just for, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody. Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then you have this like extra thing going on. You're like, Oh, now I have to deal with this. Like, okay, great. (laughs) So I don't know how I survived high school. And by the time I was in my undergrad, it was just like a mess. You know, I was 20, years old when I had my first like for real suicide attempt after I was put in the institution which is like three years ago almost from today I learned what mania was and so it turns out that my suicide attempt was like six seven months into a manic episode that I had started being manic in like August September and then it was like June it was a long time and I was having all these records behaviors and I lived by myself so again nobody knew somehow I would just get alcohol from my friends or I would steal it at the store and get blackout drunk wake up on my floor and go to class still do all the work still seem fine to other people but I was really caving in at that point and just being impulsive in so many ways not sleeping when I was institutionalized for the first time my parents were now confronted with a psychiatrist for the first time yeah right I mean she said point blankly to my parents if you don't take this seriously like you are lucky that she's alive and it it really it seemed just like that moment that at least for my mother she was like oh okay Like, I believe you. I trust you. So that's what brought everything into real big focus for your family. Yeah. And so I, in a way, I really don't regret (laughs) that suicide attempt because it seemed like the beginning of the rest of my life. Like, literally, you were given a second chance at life, but now you had this sense of understanding and trust and validation, which I think... 
everyone who's disabled and mentally ill want is to be validated because again, so much of your symptoms are inside or they're like trapped in your brain and you don't know how to prove, like you don't know how to prove it to someone. It's not like you're in a wheelchair and you're like, see, like there's nothing you can show. And so to now have this psychiatrist, this like official person sit down with my parents and be like, this, this is for real. You need to take this seriously. Medication, therapy, everything for now on. You're lucky that she's here. While I'm really happy that that finally brought awareness to my parents, more so my mom, it's still a very problematic issue that it, it takes for someone to get to that point to have an official, like a doctor, to get your parents to believe and trust you. It just is very frustrating. And there's so many people who can't, who don't survive suicide and then everyone wonders oh what happened you know I'm sure there were many times that these people who died were reaching out or at least the signs were there and no one looks at it that way it's very interesting hearing that take on it because as you're talking about this I'm I'm just feeling like where is the opportunity for there to be an advocate for children mm-hmm. in, in this scenario and, and thinking back you know you have someone whether it's a, the family doctor or in the schools when they're doing screenings for hearing or for blindness diabetes or you know any of these things and yet there isn't someone who can act as an advocate and interventionalist when they can see or, or identify something like this or be on the lookout mm-hmm. for kids like this because how can you would eight be your own advocate? How can you at 12 be your own advocate? I'm so glad that you were able to get that. It sucks that it had to happen so late in life. Yeah. (laughs) I also wonder, like, how can we advocate for more in middle schools and high schools? And that advocacy also needs to be modernized. So, for example, when I was growing up, even if you had just a learning difference, you were put in special ed classes, which I have a big problem with the term special ed. When you're in these classes, now again you're like literally ostracized you're put in a different room everybody knows that you're in special ed and so you get bullied for that and the mentality also for someone who's mentally ill is that you're violent you can't be trusted you're incompetent I have to believe that even if your teachers knew that you know teachers who are perhaps unaware about disability unaware about how to teach multiple learning styles and brains that they're going to treat you differently and I was very conscious about this belief that okay well maybe if I started to show symptoms which you know again many of my symptoms were there but I was much better at hiding my psychotic symptoms yeah 100% because I just thought that my seat at the table would be taken away and I didn't want to risk that I want to be in a classroom with everyone else I want to because I'm still a knowledgeable smart person but when you confess these things people perceive you differently, whether it's good or bad, (laughs) you know? So while I hope that there can be more resources in these environments, in in high school and middle school, they need to be adaptive. They need to be contemporary. There needs to be an understanding of really what mental illness is and how you can still microaggress stigma even though you think you're breaking away from it. So for example, when we say special needs, that is actually buying into the stigma that people think you're getting rid of. So they're like, oh, well, we're not saying like mentally and then the R word. But when we use the term, 
term special, why are we special? We're just disabled. And there's this huge belief that if you just separate us, like that is what's doing us good. And you're actually just perpetuating that continuous systematic erasure, incarceration, separation, segregation, all of that. That's what I fear, that if we just jump into being like, okay, let's do more screenings or testings for this stuff, but they're not at that really contemporary advocacy level and understanding of these microaggressions that it's actually going to make things potentially worse for students who are undiagnosed. And you've taken a lot of this and channeled it into your personal practice and, and your personal work. Yeah. To kind of branch off the diagnosis, I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder in my institution. Like, I think I had every single symptom except one for borderline. And after I moved here to Chicago in 2017, so that was like a year later, I started with a new psych and I started to kind of come out, like the, the concept really of, of coming out and talking about the symptoms that I was hiding for so long. And he helped me reach this understanding that I was schizoaffective. And so schizoaffective branches together bipolar symptoms and schizophrenia. Interesting. I thought was, okay. again, never heard of that one yeah. either. And so you're, you're thinking about now all of these things together. So you have like those, those weekly different monthly patterns of your bipolar. You also have your personality disorder, which can change your mood in a second. And then you also have some of the schizophrenic symptoms. Right. Schizoaffective pulls from both. And now... I have this complete understanding of myself now <laughs> with these, these diagnoses, which I've talked to so many people. It's either like it changes your life in a great way or you just, it ruined your life almost. And for me, I had always just wanted someone to confirm what I was already experiencing for so long. And so those, the diagnoses was just like, Oh, bless. <laughs> like it's not all in my head. Like that, that idea, it's actually a for real thing. And I was being seen for the first time, which means I could get medication, all that. When you say be seen, like mm -hmm. seen it as, as your whole person? Yeah. 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 Not awesome. this kind of, uh, like, half of me. Well, it sounds like you had to, had, to, had to play a part for so long. It was, yeah. You kind of craft the character. Yeah. Um, so when I say like coming out, it really felt like coming out yeah. because now people who didn't know that I was like schizo or borderline before are like, who is this person? Right. right. And as I mentioned, their perception of you will, it does change. Some people are much more obvious. Like they, they kind of act different around me now. My closer friends are just aware and they champion my ability to be upfront about that and to channel that into my work, into my life. I, I started doing performance art in my undergrad, but I didn't really start doing disability art. I mean, I was, you know, I knew that I was yeah. kind of doing performances to help myself heal until I started being much more open about it. Yeah. <laughs> so I got into, I was accepted into the performance program here at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, which was a shock, by the way. I did not <laughs> think that that was going to happen, especially right out of undergrad. That right. was a big surprise. When I got here, I wasn't diagnosed with schizoaffective yet, but halfway through my schooling for those two years, I was suddenly. <laughs> 
suddenly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I guess I can be super open about it now, you know. And what I was understanding about performance was I started to kind of reflect a lot on my past. I think about my past, so many moments of my own history to inform who I am today. Yeah. And I kind of realized literally just like last week (laughs) that I think the reason why I'm so nostalgic and so reliant on my past is to constantly remind myself that I'm here in reality and that the experiences I've had proves that I'm alive. And I reflect a lot about my childhood self. In a lot of ways, I want to... I want to give back to her and to serve her in what she was not given as a child. That's really to, beautiful. To really give her yeah. slash me this this voice. Yeah. And I I now reflect predominantly about passing, about this management of visibility, about those traumas and instability. And I'm like, how can I kind of use those experiences as well as kind of the peculiarities of the symptoms to stylistically and conceptually inform my work. So for example, I might use video that has like layered vocal audio or in my movement work, I might literally like fidget and kind of relate to these movement-based coping mechanisms. Like kind of, I tap, I move my legs a lot, I touch my hair a lot. You know, those kinds of things. And I transcend them into the work that I'm doing because performance is in a way inherently inauthentic. And I encountered that barrier all the time. And I, then I felt like a fake, you know, like, should I, should this be the medium that I'm using to talk about mental illness? Will this come across in the wrong way? But then I started realizing that there is a lot of merit to using stylistic reperforming and representations of mental illness. Cause one of the main goals I want to do is reach non-disabled audiences, you know? And I'm like, how do I do that without scaring them away? Cause in the first performances I was doing, they were like really extreme, very uncomfortable. And when people are confronted with those kinds of topics, they just shut down immediately. Their full of tension is gone. They're not really seeing you. They're not seeing the work. I found that to be a lot of failure. You know, I found that if I'm, I caution when I use the word dilute, but if I could, how about codify? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I, I get where you're going with that. Though, so how, how can you, how can you have the strength of experience to put like a median? Yeah. You know, there's, there's like me on one end of the spectrum. There are all the other non-disabled, non-disabled folk on the complete other side, yeah. and then in the middle is this like little bridge, right? So there's, there's something in between me and them, rather than just me and them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, that makes a lot of sense. And so one of the things I do is. I videotape myself or my partner videotapes me having like a panic attack, a psychotic episode. And I, I try to chart the movements that I'm doing when I'm in these states 
And this is also an archive that I don't share with anyone. And I learned to kind of control myself to perform them. Because when you're in these states, the movements that you're doing, you're they're almost like involuntary. You have very little control of how your body's moving when you're in a complete psychotic state. But the movements are very particular, and I find that they are quite synonymous with other movements that schizo people do. There seems to be this like common occurrence. I don't know why that is, but you know, these like hand gestures that you okay. might see a lot of schizo folk do. It's it's that process of regaining control. And it's such a strange feeling because it seems so unnatural to perform these movements, but you're also incredibly aware that these are the movements that you do when you're psychotic. So it's really foreign. Yeah. But something kind of happens in my mind when I am able to reperform them. I feel like I know more about myself. And so I consider this a median. You know, I'm still doing the movements that I would do during a psychotic episode, but I'm, I've taken it completely out of that context, out of that context of not being in control. And I've crafted this careful environment where I am in control of my movements. I'm completely in control of where people are sitting, how they're perceiving me, and I'm reperforming those things. If our listeners were wanting to see your work, I have a lot going on. Do I, I mean, more in the academic world. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then I'm starting my doctoral studies in August in disability studies. Right now, the main thing that's on the table is I was accepted into the second international disability conference that's actually being hosted at my undergrad this oh, okay. year. Oh. Yes, which is super funny. That's awesome. <laughs> and my it's going to be a lecture performance, although okay. it will probably have a little workshop at the end because okay. I always like to get my audience involved. Right. I'm very keen on educational types of performances, always trying to find the way I can blend performance art with academia. Constantly. Right. Because they seem so fond and yeah. far apart, but I don't know how to bring them to, together. And it's about Sanism, which is the discrimination of mental illness. And it's about Sanism in the U.S. school system. What I will be doing is I'm pulling from online archives from Reddit, Facebook, Tumblr, about people's experiences of being discriminated against because of their mental illness or disability in the school system. I'm also creating a kind of like a Google doc form okay. where someone can not, because they're all anonymous accounts, by the way, okay. for someone to share their story with me. And so I can have that as a resource. And what I'll be doing is pulling out segments of everybody's writing to kind of curate this new prose poetry script for me to read and perform from. And that, that's kind of been my mode of working, okay. this sort of fragmented piecing of people's stories so that it literally becomes this paradigm where it's it's so many experiences, but when they're blended together, it still has that overall message of being like, this happens to us everywhere. 
That's so cool. So I will be doing that and I will be sure to include my own experiences of Satanism at yeah. Moore College, which were very prominent. <laughs> but I wrote that in my proposal and they're willing to hear it. So I will be doing that in October. If people want to find out more about your work, do you have a website? Do you do I social do. media? So what, what, where should they go to learn more about you? So my website is www.katiel, like the letter L, O'Neill.com. We'd love to have you back on and please keep us appraised because mm-hmm. you do amazing things. And uh, you know, uh, thanks for sharing your story here today. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chris. My pleasure. Hey, thanks everyone for joining us for today's episode with Katie L. O'Neill. To learn more about Katie's work, you can visit her website at katielonneal.com. And to connect with us, you can visit us at kaiharding.com slash shoutbox. We are always interested in hearing from you, whether it's comments or feedback or questions, or you have stories for us or people you think we should meet. So please feel free to drop me an email at shoutbox at kaiharding.com. Today's episode was recorded live at the Harold Washington Library in Chicago. It was edited and mixed by Sven at Blue Box Studio. And our theme music was written and performed by Melody Jane Wachtel of the band This Is Us Sticker. Thank you all for joining us again and have a lovely week.